Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday 22nd of May 2018. I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London and with me as usual from across the pond is Mark Pender, whose birthday I understand it is today. <laughs> so oh, ha happy birthday to you, you Mark. I'm so embarrassed. Oh no. And and for those of you who enjoyed the celebration surrounding Saturday's royal wedding over here, well, uh -huh. from what I've heard, when it comes to the revelries on Mark's birthdays, you ain't seen nothing yet. No, the now, costumes. You're missing the costumes. You don't see those. Maybe we can post a picture along with that. Them. That may be a very good news as far as our listeners are concerned. <laughs> OK, before we go to Mark then, with that wedding fresh in the memory, I thought I'd just quickly touch on how it might impact some of the UK's economic data. Now, such events typically provide a boost to economic activity, although it's never easy to quantify it exactly. Food and drink are often the main beneficiaries, as is tourism. I thought it'd be interesting if we just look back at Friday, April the 29th, 2011, for those people with good memories, and a wedding between uh, Prince William and the Duchess of Cambridge. Now, at that time, the British Retail Consortium estimated that the celebrations were worth about an extra £500 million to the UK retail sector. And tourist Britain saw an extra 4 million visitors worth some, what, £2 billion or so. So potentially you know, a sizable impact. Now, it's interesting we actually look at the, the official, the Office of National Statistics figures for retail sales um, during that wedding period, at least for the month of April when the wedding took place. Now, retail sales volumes in the UK in February were down 0.4 in the month. In March, they were down 0.1 in the month. But in the month of the actual wedding itself in April, they jumped 1.4%. And in May, they fell back 2.1%. Now, it does seem to be on the basis of that, that this wedding clearly had you know, some implications or positive effects. But as ever, there are caveats because in this particular case, there was an additional bank holiday on the wedding day itself, which didn't happen this time around. And indeed, it was also the warmest April on record that year at the time as well. So I think you know, the underlying message, it looks as if there should be some positive impact on at least some of the UK economic statistics um, for this month, or they'll probably be rather less than we saw in 2011. 2011. Certainly retail sales could get, get a useful boost, but I guess it's going to be relatively short-lived that is of course unless England go on to win the World Cup which starts <laughs> next month so well I'll dream of that Mark what can you enlighten us about <laughs> well, what investors should be focused upon stateside well I'm still not done with the wedding here now um so you think there'll be a, a GD a second quarter GDP effect well, it's certainly, I think we'll, we'll see something decent in terms of the May retail sales and general activity numbers. So if uh -huh. we compared it to the previous wedding, the problem is there was an extra day's leave. So yeah, we but, did. But, but the comparison with the wedding was, that's a five or six, uh, seven years ago, right? So oh, it is. Quarter, so, but for us, it's just going to be a first quarter to second quarter thing. And we, I guess we can expect to see a little boost, probably, from this? I think so. With a bit of luck, it's a question, of uh -huh. course, you know, how much of the extra spending in May is simply taking it out of June and how uh -huh. much it is actually additional spending. But I certainly think there's reason for supposing we could see at least a little bit of a lift. And, all, and also for all the economics fans, you know, this is going to create a calendar distortion for May comparisons with UK data. So the, the, the economists are going to be uh, busy trying to figure out uh, how much to add, how much to subtract from uh, things like consumer spending in May, which will be kind of a, a little bumpy area now for the next couple of months and also for next year when you look back at this time this year, right? 
Yep, very much so. I mean, it's a month-on-month comparison in particular, which is going to be certainly distorted for this year. And as uh, you mentioned, when we get into next year, on next year, we assume won't have another royal wedding. So the uh, year-on-year changes will be distorted as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, we don't have anything um, uh, distortions right now. I guess uh, you were asking about the consumer. Um, uh, I don't think that there's much distortions. What's interesting, but we had last uh, week's retail sales report, which really wasn't all that great. Um, it was moderate, which was a, uh, actually a little bit uh, better than uh, what uh, what we saw in the first quarter. So we're kind of getting off to a little bit of a uh, of an upbeat pace, but nothing compared to what the employment. Uh, the labor market is showing. Now, we not only had that 3.9% uh, unemployment rate uh, in April, but the unemployment claims since then uh, in the weeks in May have been very low, uh, hitting historic lows, 50-year uh, lows. And, th- and this is at a time when the um, uh, labor market is significantly uh, larger than it was. So um, the, uh, the demand for labor is very strong. And we saw that earlier uh, in the uh, in the Jolts report with the number of job openings for the first time ever matching the number of, um, of uh, people looking for jobs. So uh, it's a very strong labor market and we're not going to get the employment report until the next week, uh, week after next. But uh, I think we, we can probably uh, uh, look for a strong report. Now, when is this going to translate into 2018 consumer spending uh, strength there? We're still, I think we're still waiting and, uh, and I'm not quite sure why we're not seeing it um, and uh, and for and just I want to uh, touch quickly on manufacturing, and then turn it back to you for the factory sector uh, in the UK, also the UK economic uh, economics, and also uh, uh, the factory sector in Europe. We're getting extraordinary signs here in some of these reports, of, and we've been getting them uh, consistently now, where uh, the capacity stress is at record highs in these reports. And that is whether you're looking at a regional report like the Philly Fed last week or Empire State or even Richmond Fed today. Today's uh, Tuesday, May 22nd. And the Richmond Fed came out with a very, very strong report with lots of uh, price pressures, uh, lots of inventory, um, uh, raw materials uh, climbing. And that could be an effect on the, uh, on the tariffs. Tariffs really haven't played out much in the actual um, uh, economic data. Nothing that you can actually, with you know, uh, that permits a, a positive conclusion. Um, but we're getting the beige book next week, which is an anecdotal report by the Federal Reserve. In their prior beige book uh, last month, they raised a lot of uh, tariff concerns. And so that is a wild card. And, and what it, it may be doing to the manufacturing sector, so in, in employment, you would expect it to improve consumer spending. But with these tariffs, it's not really clear uh, what the immediate effects are going to be. It could raise domestic demand. Uh, and uh, as the Beige Book uh, last month uh, suggested that uh, manufacturers, domestic manufacturers, were, were opening up idled uh, uh, steel mills and stuff like that. Or it could depress it, or it, it could pull forward demand, it could raise pressure. So we're kind of waiting to see. Uh, but the early indications for the manufacturing sector is that, the, the, that it's going to be a, a very strong contributor to, uh, to economic growth, um, which is, I, I guess... Uh, it's been a leading uh, sector here for a while. I think it's really moving out to the fore. Now, do you see the same thing in Europe? 
Well, really, we're seeing completely the opposite over here. And I think it's you know, one of the factors behind the, the increasing concerns we're getting now about the, you know, just the, the state of the, the health of the Eurozone economy. And we did actually see an increase in industrial production in March. That was up 0.5% on the month. But that has been the first increase in a while. And it's still made for a negative first quarter. So the factory sector actually subtracted from uh, growth in the first quarter of the Eurozone. And indeed, manufacturing weighed upon uh, UK first quarter GDP as well. Now, it's going to be an important week from that context, I think, as we go through the rest of this week, because for Eurozone, some of the most important figures here, these flash PMI surveys, uh, these will be for May and we're getting them tomorrow. Now, at the moment, say, there is this big question mark over the first quarter. Is, was it just a temporary slowdown or has the, you know, the economic recovery shifted down a gear? Uh, the April PMIs were disappointing. If the May flash figures come in on the soft side as well, it really is going to start stoking the belief that even if the ECB wants to end its quantitative easing in September, it's simply not going to be able to. And it's a similar sort of, you know, idea, really, I suppose, as far as the UK is concerned, too, whereby, if you remember not so long ago, everyone was talking about a May tightening from the B of E. Well, that's gone out the window now as well. And this week, again, we'll have a raft of important figures. In particular, we'll get the inflation figures, the CPI. Um, they'll be for April. They're due out tomorrow. We'll also be getting retail sales on Thursday and the revised GDP figures um, on Friday. None of those are expected to be particularly great. So it really looks as if, you know, rather than, you know, your side of the pond where it's the talk of when the Fed's going to next increase interest rates is getting to the stage uh, as far as the UK is concerned will there be an increase at all this year and indeed as far as Eurozone is concerned you know wh when will the next increase finally come about so very much a dislocation in the economic cycles at the moment. And let me ask uh, Jeremy uh, what, uh, what that means for the dollar do you see the dollar going up on this? I do. And I must. I just want to talk a little bit about the dollar before I go, Ray, just um, some of the factors that are weighing on the dollar. Well, I should say weighing on the dollar, I should say um, weighing on the euro and helping the dollar. And that's what's going on in Italy currently. Now, I think you know, we've all been used to, you know, political instability in Italy. It, it kind of goes without saying it just happens all the time. But now I think it's become that much more important. And just kind of in a nutshell, and if, if folks remember, after the election in March uh, was is inconclusive. There was no there's no um, government formed. It looked as if we'd have to have probably another set of elections. Last week was an agreement between the anti-establishment Five Star Movement and the far right Northern League to form a coalition government. Now this is the first time that a founding member of the European Union has been led by a populist anti-EU administration. Now, that's already raising concerns about what it might mean. And you know, clearly, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Jeremy. I yeah. heard that. I've heard that before. Run that one by me again. This is the first time that, that what? So it's the first time that a founding member of a the founding European, member, okay. founding member. So, you know, one of the big one, of the, one of the earliest members you know, are actually sort of going against the whole ideal of what the European Union is supposed to stand for. Now, let's just back up a little bit and say, well, the good news, I suppose, is that both of these sides have toned down their original anti-EU rhetoric. Indeed, if we go back to last year, there's a lot of talk that if either side came in, they'd be calling for a referendum on the membership of the euro itself that no longer appears to be on the table. And that's one reason why investors haven't gone completely mad at this. However, the bad news is 
the 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 policies that the new government's talking about are built around increased government spending lower taxes rolling back pension reform so all the sort of factors which you know would really have huge implications or potentially huge implications for what is already a dangerously fragile fiscal position in Italy and their debt to gdp ratio is what 132% so it's only second highest behind greece and uh, what they're planning on doing can make it untenable. Now, what's happened over the course of the last few days, which is the really big worry, is the way the government's talking about dealing with its financial arrears. And specifically, the idea is to create what they call um, so-called mini BOTs. And that is it's a small value version of a current BOT, which is simply an Italian treasury bill. Now, it wouldn't carry an interest rate. It's not going to have maturity date. That's no problem so far. But the intention apparently is to use these effectively IOUs to meet payments to suppliers and creditors at accumulated arrears. Now, the mini BOT wouldn't be legal tender. Only the ECB can issue euros, but they could still be seen as a parallel currency as they could be used to buy goods or services at state-controlled companies. In other words, it could also be seen as a backdoor means of adding to the national debt. And clearly, the idea of having a parallel currency run inside Italy, running alongside a euro, is a complete and utter non-starter as far as the likes of the ECB and other European policymakers are concerned. So that's certainly, we've seen uh, the Italian stock market down sharply. We've seen a big widening in, um, in BTP, Italian bond yields versus German bunds over the course of the last week or so. And it's also having a significant negative impact upon the euro. So I think, you know, it's a long-winded answer to your question, <laughs> but with the slowdown in growth, the lack of chance of any you know, increase in interest rates, indeed, possible extension of the quantitative easing program in Europe, compared with what's happening your side, where you've got good growth mm. numbers, you've got the Fed raising interest rates, mm. it really does look as if you know, dollar-euro could be moving perhaps significantly higher in the course of you know, the next few days. Um, what's your feel? I mean, do you have a dollar-bullish dollar feel your side of the water? Yeah, I think uh, well, with the uh, you know the the treasury rates going up and and the risk perhaps of a less gradual uh, rate uh, sequence, rate hike sequence from the Fed, uh, that could also raise uh, demand for the dollar. Uh, plus, uh, it looks like growth over here is better than growth over there. Um, and even though it wouldn't play to the administration efforts, um, trade efforts um, to lower the uh, net export deficit, uh, it does, the dollar has kind of a mind of its own. And so I, it would seem that uh, uh, there would be more strength uh, than weakness. And it also would be coming against a, a weak comparison because don't forget, it fell about 10% last year, but it's about flat so far this year, a little bit up, I think. Okay, interesting times. Looks as if it could be a good time to buy dollars. Um, well, I guess then that's probably about us done for this week. On behalf of Mark, myself, and indeed the rest of the Accommodate team, thanks as always for listening. Happy trading, and we look forward to talking to you again next week when perhaps we can discuss the implications for the US data of Mark's birthday. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs>